the day before Thanksgiving in 1971, a man identifying himself as Dan Cooper bought a plane ticket from Portland to Seattle. He hijacked the plane, claiming he had a bomb in his briefcase and demanded $200,000 in four parachutes. He jumped out of the plane with the money and the bomb somewhere over the Pacific Northwest, never to be seen again. The FBI claims to have investigated over a thousand people, including dozens of deathbed confessions. In 2016, 45 years after the hijacking, the FBI suspended its investigation of the case. While the FBI is no longer looking for D.B. Cooper, there is a community of people who are trying to solve the case on their own. Welcome to the Cooper Vortex. In this episode, we're lucky to be joined by another guest from across the pond. He's a best-selling author, philanthropist, keynote speaker, autism advocate, and founder of Neurodiversity Training International. You can check out his talk on YouTube, and his new book will definitely be of interest to you. It's called Dan Cooper, and it's a historical fiction novel. It's filled with the facts we know, and he imagines all the details we aren't so sure of. Coming to you from Northern Ireland, my good friend, Jude Morrow. All right, Jude, when was the first time you heard about D.B. Cooper? The first time I heard about D.B. Cooper was in October 2022, where over in Ireland, unfortunately with D.B. Cooper, the story is not very well known. It's a very much an all-American tale, where last year I was uh, releasing my last book, The Ghost of Riot's Past, which is an Irish history book. Then during that promo stage before it came out last year, I turn on Netflix and I see yourself and Eric and all the other lovely people involved in the Cooper Vortex and thought, this is a really phenomenal story. And I was surprised that I hadn't really heard of it. I knew that there was some hijacker that wore sunglasses that jumped out of a plane with a bunch of money and was never found, but I didn't know an awful lot about it. But whenever I fell down the vortex rabbit hole, the vortexy rabbit hole, uh, I'm hooked now and I think I probably will be for life. So yeah, a year at most. One year. Okay. So that's interesting. So you watch the Netflix special and then where do you go from there? It piques your interest. Okay. I want to learn more about this D.B. Cooper thing. Where do you go? Well, I've, the first stop was the D.B. Cooper mystery group on Facebook. I think it's a rite of passage for all things Cooperism uh, nowadays. And I thought, I want to I want to get in this guy's head. I want to find out, you know, why did he do this? Because if there's anything in life that annoys me, there are stories that don't have an ending. You know, there's there, and where that started, actually, and it's uh, a literary trauma of mine, and I don't know if you've read it, but some people may relate, as Edgar Allan Poe only wrote one novel, and it's called The Adventures of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket. And the, it ended abruptly, and it really annoyed me, and it stuck with me for life. So it's like, I, I like stories that have like a proper like ending. And with Cooper, that same feeling came back, where it was, this doesn't have a period or a full stop on the end of it. There's no end to this. And I was like, well, what if I could even if only to reassure myself, invent my own end and my own before November 24th, 1971. So that that was the start of the kind of the tumbling down the rabbit hole. And I thought over time that D.B. Cooper was this badass, was this young, hip, cool badass that got this money, you know, danced down those steps like a boss, you know, but, smoked a cigarette in the last stair, you know, did a 
perfect arched jump out and just Mary Poppins landing and just escaped. And now a year later, having probably dedicated way too much of my life to D.B. Cooper, I couldn't get away from thinking the exact opposite of what I initially thought about him. So where, other than the D.B. Cooper mystery group on Facebook, did you read any books on Cooper? I did. I read Bruce Smith's book. I read Jeffrey's book. That's a book. good choice. I read, I read pretty much most books that I could get my hands on. Uh, then there was the uh, Bigfoot versus D.B. Cooper movie, uh, which... I mean, yeah, maybe I'll have to get therapy for that someday. Who knows? Um, there just didn't really seem to be a, a big wealth of books. Uh, I, I did also have the misfortune of reading the Walt Recca confession as well and thought, this is just about crazy. Um, I one book that I really wanted to read was the Real McCoy book. And you will not get it. I don't know if you have it, but you, you can't get it anymore. And I saw one copy on eBay once and it was selling for $300 and somebody bought it. The biggest mistake that I've made in doing this show is that I promoted all these weird and obscure books that nobody gave a shit about for years and years and years. Uh, in 2015, 2016, when I really started getting into D.B. Cooper, I was buying those books for like $7 on eBay or thrift books. And they were in stock and nobody cared about them. And if I was smart, I would have bought stacks of The Real McCoy. I would have bought stacks of Himmelsbach's book. I would have bought stacks of Max Gunther's book. Did you read Max Gunther's book, D.B. Cooper, What Really Happened? I did. I bought that one. Bought that one. I. Mm, it was There were some parts of it that were, were odd, uh, and especially around the parachutes and We'll, 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 we'll get to the parachutes, but because uh, that's fun. Um, Kossau's book was great. I, re I really liked that because there was a detail in it that I kept for my book. Uh, and it was concerning Cooper looking over at Bill Mitchell and saying he has to go or he has to leave or move him or so words to that effect that he'd said to Tina and things that had turned up in Tosaw's book that didn't turn up anywhere else because the infuriating thing with the 302s, they're not transcripts of what the flight crew or passengers actually said. It's summaries from what the, the FBI agents were told. So the likelihood of stuff being actually missed was just the worst. Where it was like, ah, you know, it, everything was just teed up for this guy to never, ever be discovered by anyone, ever, anywhere. And even this podcast too. Where I mean, I've I've listened to every last one of them, every last every last one of them. And if you are to ask me for a favorite episode, I love the Gossett one, where I was thinking, yeah, he's not bad. But I mean, but as far as DB Cooper suspects, most of them are bad. You know, I thought most of them were bad. And where else did I go? I'll tell you where I went. I I actually took up. And learned to skydive to write it to write the book because i can't write about something from just speaking to somebody i have to do it like for my, my last book was centered around first aid so i needed to learn to do first aid with like old 1960s first aid stuff that i got on ebay so i needed to actually learn to parachute and go through the aff course you've done a solo jump and everything yes i have 
Uh, both here and abroad. I mean, I know the video is not going out, but I'm wearing my Skydive Spain swag um, for this. So, yes, I've done solo jumping. Yeah, I have. I've, I've, I've only done jumped out to fly my own ship. Because I, I wanted to have the actual feeling of being in control. I didn't think a tandem really cut the mustard. I mean, the bird didn't have anybody strapped to him. So I thought I need to do this myself. Uh, to have the sensation of it, to write about it, to have that control, maintain stability. You know, for those like little details that will probably be so inconsequential that nobody will ever care about them. In fact, no reviewers have mentioned any of the skydiving scenes whatsoever. <laughs> or any jump sable. I mean, there's only a couple. Because uh, I just don't think the guy was an experienced parachutist whatsoever. Why don't you think he was an experienced parachutist? Uh Recently, Ryan Burns, big shout out to Ryan Burns. Uh, I've just become such a Ryan Burns fanboy too uh, over the last year. I mean, we can talk for hours. He's a pretty cool guy. And and have done, Ryan and me. So Ryan has been doing a lot of like, research in the parachutes. And I, I actually got them too. I actually got the Cooper front parachute and the, the MB6 backpacks. I, I do have both of them uh, here with me at home. And Cooper looked at two packing cards on the flight. When the two parachutes came on, he looked at the two packing cards. The tan backpack had a 28-foot canopy in it, for, and it was manufactured in 1957. And the green backpack had a 24-foot canopy in it, and it was manufactured, I think, in 1963 or 1964. And he took the green one, because it was the newer one, I think, where you would look at the two packing cards, and obviously you go for, with the bigger one, because the guy has all this crap attached to him. Where he has the big Looney Tunes cotton money bag. I mean, why didn't the guy say, hey, this isn't what I asked for. I asked for a knapsack by five. Get yourself into the terminal building and get me a knapsack. He didn't do that. He said, you know what, I'm just going to tie it to myself. So he tied a money bag, a briefcase, maybe another one of the containers, the missing front container to himself and jumped 24 feet. And he was described as between, what, 175 and 185? We'll not cry about a few pounds here and there. So he was going on a 24-foot canopy with a maybe 235, 240-pound load under it. And unless he landed on a pillow factory or bales of hay in November or was just extremely lucky, I just can't see the guy getting to the ground uninjured, unarmed, or unhurt in any way whatsoever. I just can't see it. Um, Yeah, I... I just can't see it. All right. I got a lot to say about that, Jude. First of all, I want to talk about those parachute cards, the packing cards. I think that is so interesting because if he really only has military experience jumping, I don't see him pulling the packing card. I don't think a no. military person would would do that, would inspect those shoots. They tend to be handed equipment. It's good to go. Use it. Yeah. Let's do this. So I think that says something about him having some civilian skydiving experience. Definitely. Because any military people that I, I spoke to, whether it's from the era or even now, they didn't know what packing cards were. They had no idea. And even people that jumped with those rigs, like those those rigs were very common. Like the NB, the Navy Backpack series of parachutes were very, very common. So some of which are still in production today and are still used, especially the fronts. The front reserves and military people with no civilian sky jump club drop zone experience they don't know what a packing card is because whether it's a quartermaster corps or the raf they rig and pack the parachutes and house and 
they, they wouldn't know what a packing card is. They're just they're, they put the parachute on their back or on their front and away they go. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, I'm not saying that Cooper had no military experience. I mean, just based on his age, statistically, he likely served in the military. But it, it is interesting that it seems like he has some civilian parachuting or skydiving experience. So does that narrow the field, the suspect field a little more? I, I don't know, maybe. Now, to speak about the fact that you don't believe he survived his landing, if he pulls that chute and doesn't survive, I think he's found right away. We 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 find him right away. Oh, look, there's a giant blanket over a pile of some sort of mess. Oh, wait, it's a parachute. And here's a smashed body underneath it with $200,000 strapped to it. I think if he pulls that parachute and doesn't survive the jump, either he lands in a tree or falls in a river or uh, just the impact was more than he could handle, I think he's found immediately. Although, if he does land in the drink on a no-pull and he's got a big Looney Tunes money bag strapped to him, that's just a counterweight and he's just going to go to the bottom. Um, if he's A no-pull is a little bit different. A no-pull... Yeah then there is a small chance that he lands in the exact spot that no one is ever going to look. Um, and then, you know, the odds that it's a no pull and he lands in water. I mean, that's, it's not very likely that he would land in water. I mean, I want someone to do the math for me, do the flight path. Let's go mile wide. What percentage of that is land versus water? It's gotta be like, very little. yeah. 98% land. Oh yeah, I, easy, easy. It's it is mo- it is mostly land, but I I don't know. I can't see it because I used a twenty. I actually got pretty badly hurt in Spain the the last time I was out, where I flared my twenty eight far too early, and it was a mighty crash at the bottom. And I'm I'm two hundred under a twenty eight, and I felt that where the brief you know back of a cigarette packet mathematics that I did on that. Was if I was forty pounds heavier on a canopy with so many dozens of square feet less, it probably would have shattered my pelvis and both my legs at the bottom. Where it was an almighty thump. I've never felt a thump like it, and I was in boots. And this was daylight on a reasonably soft ground, where I just even then I got up. I was pretty banged up and about shaken up, but I was okay. But it just reinforced that view. It was like, if that parachute was smaller and I was 50 pounds heavier, then that was that would not have been a very good outcome for me whatsoever. See, I may tear your theory completely apart. By the time we're done with this, you're going to be like, he definitely survived the jump. Um, Although, surviving the jump, he definitely survived the jump. Because the jump is just your two feet leaving the aircraft exit door or leaving the stairs. That's the jump. It's the landing. Did he survive that? Because that's people say, "Oh, the jump was survivable." Right? I mean, like, is, is it not the the landing? Uh, oh, I'm totally rolling but... my eyes at you now, Jude. Now you're just getting into oh. specific details or how oh, something's yeah. worded. We know what we're talking about. Did I, he survive the jump? I... So, do you think he no pole? No, no, definitely not. Definitely not. That that I think I I think that was uh, an episode of me being a bit of a contrarian. I I don't think it was a no pole. I mean, if, 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 even if he's unstable. He, like he could go off like this. He could pull right away on the stairs. He could fall down and pull the handles. Very visible. That's what it was designed for. It was basically designed for somebody who'd never done a jump to be able to pull and land at the bottom, even if it was, it's with a broken leg. 
it's better than being dead. Now, I, I know that for like for my book, I did it like Cooper, like talking about the crime. So I have it in the book that he made it, but at what cost? You know, um, it's just it's just hard and because that, that's what everybody would want. I mean, it would make for a pretty crappy book, wouldn't it? It's like uh, he jumped out and he landed on the land and he became bear food or coyote food or he landed at the bottom of the lake. And that was the end of that story. And people still talk about it 52 years later. It's not the story everybody wants. Everybody wants the getting away from the scene, whether scathed or unscathed, who knows. So you believe he holds the ripcord, the parachute deploys, mm -hmm. but he does not survive the landing. Yeah. Or he's uh, he's very badly hurt. He's very badly hurt at the bottom. He's maybe there's a, the most minuscule of chances because, I mean, the guy wasn't caught. So surely an astronomically minute possibility of him landing completely unharmed could have happened. Uh, I, I say, like, to keep myself covered, in all probability, he likely didn't survive the landing. But this guy wasn't caught. This guy might have landed on, a like, a big, soft mound of earth and was like, you know, wow! You know, I can't believe that. And away he went. What about the copycats? Their copycats survived their landing. But the, the, the difference is, though, is that they were all caught. They were all caught. And I mean, they, like, and that's what one thing I always come back on whenever people say, you know, oh, Cooper lived, sure, all the copycats survived their jumps. But uh, I mean, they were all either hauled off to jail or shot and killed by the FBI. So, and I mean, what did Cooper have that the copycats didn't have or vice versa? Maybe the answer for Cooper is he didn't have his life after getting to the ground. You know, because all the other copycats survived the jumps, yeah, and survived their landings. And the only outlier there that wasn't caught was Cooper. And is it because he died? He also has the element of surprise. They didn't think he was actually going to jump from the plane. So with the copycats, they have at least learned one lesson from, from Cooper. Whereas with Cooper, from everything I've heard is nobody thought he was actually going to jump. Yeah, because, and this is the, I suppose, with a Cooper that's very underwhelming. I think overall, as a guy, I think Cooper was quite underwhelming. Where I didn't think that Cooper was a middle-aged man. Now, I'm not dissing anybody that's in their mid-40s to early 50s. But in 1971, 50 was old. 50 was considered aging or old. And I thought Cooper was a guy around my age, 33. But no, he was way older. and whenever he the, the stairs opened, he got the stairs open a few minutes after takeoff, but then he waited 30 minutes before actually going. Where the, is the, have, the image I have is this aging man looking down the stairs, crapping his pants, being like, no, what have I done? I'm going to have to go now. You know, because if he was a... I think that wait between this the door opening and not going bunks the military thing because if you're a military jumper or a paratrooper as soon as that door opens what do you do what is your what are you trained to do go and he waited military men don't wait you don't think maybe he was waiting because he had a planned drop down how would he know i mean I, I, how would he know where he was gonna land like i mean with the with the cloud tops above i don't know how he would be able to see a waypoint or a, a drop zone or a landing point, uh, especially 30 minutes away uh, in the air, because, you know, with minimum airspeed, 
you know, it's difficult, like, even to maintain that. Like, if there was a slight increase at any point, like, it was a crapshoot no matter what. At any point, like, even if it was completely dead straight 170 knots, you know, to try and plan for that. Um, and if that was the case, why open this? Why open the door so early? Um, why not just open the door and jump 30 minutes later? It's, it seems like we wanted more drag, or I don't know, it's, it's impossible to determine, but you know, why open the door if you weren't going to jump out right away? I also think about why did he ask for the aft stairs to be down on takeoff? Like you said, he doesn't doesn't jump for 30 minutes. Yeah. And and thanks for reminding me of that because I had make sure to say in my head about he asked for the stairs to be down for takeoff. Where and even at that counter, uh I'm saying it's okay, we can lower them in flight or we'll lower them in the air. So this is a guy who knew that that aircraft could take off with its stairs down or they could be reopened in flight. So if he knew that before getting to the before even going, then that gap, it's a long gap. It's a long time to wait when you don't know where you are at 10,000 feet. Yeah, with well, most likely almost nonstop cloud cover and it's dark. So... Yeah, picking a drop zone is, would be dang near impossible. Um, completely. It would be so, so hard, especially in the dark, because with Cooper, I think, and I've thought about this a lot, is he just seemed to fold after a certain point, like circling around for, for two hours. The, the guy doesn't say, other than getting a little impatient. Now, I don't know if Tina Muckle was being polite. Like, he doesn't say, hurry the hell up. It's, it's after five o'clock. Where's my knapsack? Where's my money? Where's my parachutes? And even getting to the ground, he, he just, it just seemed to fold. Like, it's got to a point where Cooper lost control and became more of the hostage than the hijacker. Because everything he asked for, he didn't get $200,000 in a knapsack. He got it in a bag of Looney Tunes money bag. Four parachutes, he got three. Because what the one of the fronts was a dud, you know he didn't say if he knew it was a dud or not. Take that back and get me a real one. No, never once said that. Waiting around all this time for the aircraft to be refueled. We're going to. Can we go to Mexico? No, no. Uh, and even with the counters with Paul Scott, when he said, "Oh, can we go to San Francisco for a fuel stop?" and Cooper said, "No, can we stop in Phoenix?" and said, "No, Yuma or Reno." And then even with, "Can we take off the stairs down?" No. Where never once did he say, listen, I kill all you motherfuckers. I've got a bomb. Remember? This bomb in this briefcase that I have? He did. It was just, he folded. Completely folded. Where the, I mean, the badass Cooper just wasn't there really, was he, do you think? Or was everything going according to plan? I agree that the knapsack... He didn't get that. It did come in a bag that doesn't close. It's basically like a cloth bucket. And yeah. but not having one of the parachutes be operable, he asks for four, so or two sets. So if there is one of them is sabotaged or one doesn't work, or he just straight up doesn't like one, he has another one to choose from. So is he not in control or was everything going according to plan because you know tina said he was polite and calm and cool and collected and the only time he 
got frustrated was he was annoyed that the refueling was taking so long. Yeah, one thing that I really identify because what what I wanted to have was everything that Cooper said. That's without a doubt that he definitely said. Now I know there's some things that have seeped into popular culture that he more than likely didn't say, like the line "It can be done, do it." I didn't see any reference for that anywhere. No, I didn't. I don't. Is there a reference for that that maybe I don't know? I didn't see the "It can be done, do it" line when I asking if the aircraft could take off with the stairs down. No, and that's we're only getting that you know, sort of secondhand from what the pilot remembered the conversation uh, being. You know, I, I tend to believe that it's just like, he's more like, uh, they get into the argument about the stairs being down on takeoff, Pilot says it's not safe, and he's just like, it, they can, we can take off with them down, I'm not going to argue about it, I'll just lower it once we're in flight. So I don't know yeah. if that's him not getting his way, or just him knowing more about the aircraft than the pilots. Yeah, and that, that was a big writing challenge. They, the, there was things, there was red lines that I, that needed to be accounted for. The money in Tina Bar, particles on the tie. But the biggest challenge was what could this guy do or what could his background be that he would know that that aircraft could take off with the stairs down? Because Boeing, with their pilots, they they genuinely, by and large, did not know that. And that wasn't information that seemed to have been shared with them. Because if you think about it, you know, a lot of money changed hands for those seven seven two sevens when they came out in the early sixties. You know, are Boeing gonna crap all over their shareholders and say, Well, there might be a slight design flaw, folks, where these stairs can be lowered in flight. So let's sit, not think of a hijacker, let's think of a crazy unhinged passenger that decides to say unalive themselves where they could go back through the aft door press the switch pull the lever down and fling themselves out the door and it was kept quiet like it was something that boeing didn't change very quickly it was only after cooper where they actually did where i mean if you'd asked a pilot probably in the early 60s can that uh can that uh, although they're being incredibly suspicious can that thing take off with its stairs open they probably they probably would have said no they definitely would have said no. I mean, you could have asked a bunch of pilots November 24th, 1971, early in the morning, is this plane jumpable? Can you lower the aft stairs in flight? They would all have said no, it's not. So how did he know more about the plane than the pilots? That's why for my Cooper, I had him as a, a load cargo and jump master. That would certainly know if that aircraft could take off with the stairs down. That was the only thing that I could plausibly come up with other than i thought a boeing engineer a little bit boring a little bit nerdy i thought because you need action sequences like come on you need there needs to be action sequences like i mean with historical fiction what i wanted to do was preserve the story and to kind of highlight too that whether they knew it or not there there were victims i mean they were cooper's hostages the passengers <laughs> and the crew that you know they were they were his victims and i wanted to treat it sensitively but at the same time with historical fiction you know with you know, with anything Hollywood, there needs to be action, there needs to be explosions, there needs to be gunfights, there needs to be babes. You know, that there's a, a certain kind of criteria of crowd-pleasing, and that was the only thing that I could plausibly come up with of how Cooper could have known that the aircraft could take off with the stairs down. And I think the FBI took that angle too. I, I, I've listened to some of Larry Carr's interviews, and I think 
I I can't remember off the top of my head because I mean I looked at Scotch, but they I think the FBI had a, a bit of a belief that that could have been his background to know that that was a function of the seven two seven at the time. Doctor Edwards' book and and him personally sort of have that belief as well that it seems like that's most likely where he acquired that knowledge and where Cooper could have come from. Because it, it it is it is interesting that because even like you know military people maybe wouldn't know and there was something at, again the points that I forgot to say do you know what I, I kind of liked about, about Cooper and it was it was really interesting you know like the note miss I have a bomb in my briefcase please sit beside me or you know no miss I just have a grudge you know he called everybody miss and he he conducted himself on the flight and he, he I think he was profiled by the FBI as Catholic and I mean being from Catholic Ireland he conducted himself like somebody in the company of unmarried women, you know, not raising his voice, not swearing, addressing them as miss. I just thought it was, it felt very familiar where I was thinking this man's like my grandfather, you know, somebody from like a bygone era that was, was calling people miss. He didn't ask for their names either, you know, because there was no, you know, for good, and there were with the copycats, you know, that like waving a gun around or a grenade around, ah, get out of you know, but. He didn't do that. And I, and, and, and I think that's a testament to his age where, you know, his etiquette is very, very interesting. Age, definitely. But to me, it speaks to some level of some sort of operational experience. Someone who has planned something difficult and executed it. Because, you know, 10 years from now, do I have the ability to pull something like this off uh, at 50? No. I don't, but maybe if I had spent my 20s and 30s in the SEALs or as an Army Ranger, then yeah, I do have that experience. So I think that not just Cooper being polite, but sort of the control and how he's able to remain calm in that situation, to me, it says he has some sort of operational experience. That's why I put him as a cop to the Mountie. To keep calm and even calling people miss or madam or ma'am, you, you know, it, it, it seems like a very copy thing. I thought whenever I was looking through things that Cooper had asked for, there were some kind of copy things in there. Now, this is just me. This was just to my ears, you know, because there's some like aspects of American language that I don't really understand where he'd asked specifically for an unmarked vehicle to non-cops like myself. It's just a vehicle. It's just a car. Were to ask specifically for an unmarked vehicle, I thought that was a very happy thing to say. And it sort of affirmed that in, in my head. And being able to calm down in, in, that, in that situation. Being able to stay calm and collected. Like, I mean, being a cop, like it's a high octane, it's a high risk job. Because a lot of the Cooper suspects, you know, that, that I thought were even overqualified. Like, even, like, let's forget about Robert Rackstraw's age. Like, Robert Rackstraw was a rock star. Like, he was, yeah, I think, was he a Greenberry? I can't remember. It may have been extensive military experience. And there was a lot of them, even McCoy, you know, real rock stars. I believe McCoy was the Green Beret. McCoy was a Green Beret. And you, you would nearly think they were overqualified to be Cooper. And that was a thing that I, I thought with a, with a lot of military experience is that overqualification 
for Cooper, which is why I thought, what what what's a step down from military experience? And thought, okay, we'll make him a policeman. That English isn't his first language. Do you think that Cooper could be Canadian? Honestly, I have no idea. I, I, it's it makes sense. It does make sense because I didn't see anything but from the Mounties, from the RCMP, that they had an active investigation on Cooper. They did some things. They did some things like the this the serial numbered list of the bills made it their way. But other than that, I don't think there was anybody that they really seriously put forward and said, we think this could be the guy that you're looking for. You know, and I, I don't know what relations were like between the CIA and the, the, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police at the time. But, you know, records and information seems to be quite sparse where, I mean, the FBI is internal within the United States mostly. And I, I didn't really see anything. And I know with the releases, you know, there hasn't been much about suspects yet, you know, in the monthly kind of tranche of documents that come out where I, I didn't see or hear much. And there, as far as mainstream suspects being Canadians or Mexicans or non-Americans, they're, they're just not, not really there. So it's, it's, a, it's a possibility for sure that he could be Canadian because why I, I went with the Canadian, there was a, Another thing that Cooper said, you know, in the, the conversations with Tina, where he says, you know, where are you from? And she says, you know, Pennsylvania, now loving and what? Did she say Minneapolis? Yeah, Minnesota. Or Minnesota. And he says, very nice country. And I thought, that's a strange thing to say. And do you know what popped into my head when he said that? You know, Bon Provence, which is what my French neighbours would say for lovely part of the world. You know, there's just some, and even the negotiable American currency. But you know, there's there's things that he says, or are reported to have said, that sound odd. Like even the no fuss, no no fuss, or I'll do the job. You know, it's almost like a guy who researched. Tough guy, American phrases from the twenties and the thirties, <laughs> and like pulled them out on the on the middle in the middle of a flight, where he just conducted himself in a way that I wouldn't envisage. Nineteen seventy one, American English primary speaking man, which is why I, I I do lean toward Canadian because French Canadians do have a non discernible accent. Like you, you would think that with a French Canadian accent, that it's, you know, very French like France, but it's not really, because I I listened to it and it was like they don't sound like anybody. If even like if you Google, I I I, I encourage everybody to Google French Canadians speaking English, where you wouldn't they don't have the obvious oh what's that about eh or you know really Canadian you know like have you ever listened to like a French Canadian speaking english i have and i do think there is there is sort of like that uh that northern accent like uh fargo uh that sort of i mean that's obviously over the top but you know you there is that sort of accent and i'll find myself occasionally talking to someone and then all of a sudden they they'll phrase something different or they'll hit a couple of different notes in a word that I normally would. And I'm like, oh, you're from Canada, aren't you? And like, yeah, yeah, I grew up in Canada. Or I'm, yeah, I'm visiting from Canada. And so there is, you know, as someone born and raised in America, 
I do notice a Canadian accent. And the, a lot of the Canadian people I've talked to have said sort of that same thing, like no discernible accent. Well, it sort of eliminates him a little bit as being Canadian. I mean, I, it's totally plausible that Cooper's Canadian, but French Canadian, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I mean, of course, I mean, with, with Cooper, it's, it's got to a stage, I think over 52 years where everybody's guess other than the silly one, the outrageously silly ones, that uh, everybody's guess is nearly as good as anybody else's. You know, the, the, I don't know we spoke about it before we came on the air, you know, the, the, the misuse of the word theory, uh, where, you know, guessing about even things like the bomb. Uh, I, I, I hope, I, I hope we, we, we might, we, we might get somewhere on this as the bomb. I certainly think that the bomb was real. I, I I'm convinced and devoted to the idea that the bomb was real. There's a lot of reasons for it. There's a lot of reasons for the bomb being real, but it's one of these things, Darren, that nobody will ever know. Like th- there will never be like a news flash. You know, you'll never have a ping on your phone. You know, world exclusive. It has been discovered that Cooper's bomb was absolutely real. You know, it'll, it'll never really be conclusively proven. But the reason why I, I think it's real and I wrote it as being real is because whether it was, I don't think it was road flares. I think flight attendants would know what flares look like for emergency landing procedures and so on. But it's nearly like an insult to the actual victims where to them, the bomb was very real. To Tina, that bomb was real because before he went, she said, take that with you or get rid of it or whatever words to that effect while he was tying the money to himself. So that bomb frightened her, and I didn't want to have a dud or a, a fake. And there's a good case for it being real, because taking it with him, let's say he lands surrounded by cops, and he's still got a bomb. The with with bombs, and I actually had the uh, the privilege of meeting some former IRA volunteers who gave me a bit of a brief on how a bomb like this would be made. And what they often included was a saline vial tilt sensor. So what they could do is if the bomb was shaken, the circuit could complete and the bomb could go off. So they could throw it through a window and it could go. So what the police wouldn't do was shoot a bomber holding a bomb because when he falls back, what's gonna happen? So landing with that bomb and edging into the forest with it, it, it makes a lot of sense. Plus, the briefcase is good to transport money in from a big Looney Tunes cotton bag that doesn't close properly. So there, there's a good case for the bomb because imagine you were Cooper and you get on the plane and, you know, you you get the note, which was probably pre-written. So I'd be, first of all, I'd say, well, sorry for the missed part. Uh, that was a, a gender assumption on my part. And you look <laughs> at it because male flight attendants were a thing. Kenny Christensen. Yeah. Where... Imagine his note was given to Kenny Christensen and he sat down and looked into this briefcase and he was like, dude, those are flares. It's not dynamite. Get out of here, you fool. Where the likelihood of that happening is reasonably high. Like road flares. I don't have road flares in my house. I don't know if you have road flares in your house, but they're a common enough item that people would say, you know, they're road flares that are quite clearly marked because road flares did have lots of markings on them and lots of writing on them because <laughs> do you know why it's because if they didn't have it on them people might mistake them for 
don't know, dynamite maybe? So I, I, I think there's a case of, but again, that's a, that's, a, that's a guess. There is absolutely no way that'll ever be proven to be true. But I, I, I think to kind of keep the story alive, I don't think it's important, important whether the bomb was actually real or not. But for the people that were there, um, for the likes of Tina or Bill Mitchell or anybody else, that bomb was real in their eyes. Like they were oh, threatened at bomb point. If someone on an airplane tells you you have a bomb, tells you they have a bomb, you can't ask them to prove it. You yeah. have to assume, okay, I believe you. That's a real bomb. We'll do whatever you want. But about the bomb being real, I'm sure you know I always ask that question, but I have moved from being almost certain that the bomb was fake to now I'm now I'm maybe 50-50. I see a lot of real reason why the bomb would be real. Because if you are called out on it, if they do, if the cops did rush the plane in Seattle, he at least has that as a weapon. Okay. I'm, I don't want to go to jail. I would rather just blow up than go to jail if this plan doesn't work out. So yeah. I And he did I, say, I'll not be taken alive. I think it was, was that in Tosol's book? I think it may have been where Cooper did, had said to Tina, nobody will take me alive or I won't be taken alive. It's either in Tosol's or Himmelsbach's book, but we have one of those early ones. Because I, I maybe, maybe, because I, I actually did a live under the the DB Cooper mystery group about the bomb being real. I think I think the bomb was real, and I kind of outlined it. And people were like, "Yeah, I think I think I think I'm sold." Because there's a lot of pluses for it. There is, and I I think a real clincher is it's it's it can be used on the ground. Let's say Mary Poppins landed, he's still armed. Where let's say he's you know edging through the forest, you know you know complaining of his hip pain, you know because he's old, and he's like, "Oh, oh, I have to scale fences in this suit," and then all of a sudden. Woo! All these cars come. If he throws the bomb out the door at the top, you know, and he gets down, rabbit, you know. But if he's standing there and says, "Don't come near me," this is a bomb, and the cops and snipers and military would definitely know you do not shoot a bomber, because, uh, holding a bomb, because what in case you trigger the bomb. So it's it's the last lifeline wasn't left on the plane. I just don't think the guy tossed it either. Would surely that not have been found too? I would think so. Snuffer dogs could sniff dynamite. Yep, snuffer dogs would have been able to pick up the scent of dynamite. I think the dynamite would have been found, or something would have been found if he had thrown it out. I, I think he took the thing with him. I, that's what I would do. So I'd still have a weapon. Because a gun, you know, you wave a gun around, you can only get it at one pair. It's a one-directional weapon. The one so it's direction a good escape weapon. card. That's true. Do you believe the flight path is accurate? Yes. I do. I, I I think because Sage and Norad uh, had some pretty good accomplishments. Let's go to 1969. In partnership with NASA and some of their technology and equipment, they got a couple of guys to the moon. So their technology radar was pinpointable, was quite accurate. It worked. And not only did it get these guys to the moon, it got them back again. And a big uh, thing going on at the time, of course, was the Cold War, Soviet spies infiltration. Uh, I mean, you guys weren't invaded uh, because of NORAD's uh, and Sage's real in-depth network of data collection, of surveillance uh, and internal security. And 
they calculated a flight path and it was used, and especially during a hijacking as well, whenever you have an aircraft pinging out the distress signal for we are being hijacked, uh, there were eyes on that aircraft the whole time. And it's just hard to believe that what kept Soviet spies out of the United States airspace and what got men to the moon on the 24th of November 1971 was mysteriously wrong. I just can't, I, I, and that's why I think the flight path is, is is accurate. I don't understand why that's still being debated. I feel like we have real evidence of that. Um, the most advanced radar system in the United States, potentially the world, was tracking that plane that night. There's no, I don't see any evidence to support a, an alternative flight path. Uh, no, definitely not. I mean, ra- radar. Very, very advanced. Only one you guys a war a few decades before. You know, whether it was U-boats and being able to land in Normandy and being able to liberate Europe. I mean, the un- well, that's not an unsung hero. It's, it's, it's there here. It was radar. That's what it was. It was radar. That's what won. The Germans didn't manufacture or distribute good enough radar to track the enemy, flank them, get them back over the Atlantic. It was radar that won the war. It's radar that kept it going. I I just can't see how a system that won the space race and won a world war and stopped another world war from happening mysteriously went wrong on November 24th, 1971. Because McCord, even sending their own fighters after 305, like in the S-turns, like we're talking, let's say in today's money, billions of dollars worth of equipment. Billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars of taxpayers' money, defense spend for it to be somehow wrong. I, 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 I love being the devil's advocate, and that I like trying to look at things as much as possible from both sides. And that's the thing, even with Cooper being alive or dead, there's as much evidence or lack of evidence to come to either or conclusion, and it's up for healthy debate. Just can't see how a flight path being wrong enters that healthy debate arena. Like, we could talk about the bomb. You could be a faker. I could be a realer. And we could debate about it, laugh about it, enjoy a beer. I just, I just can't see how somebody could say the most advanced technological surveillance system ever built was somehow incorrect. Not just that, but I mean, like you said, so many people were watching that plane. It wasn't like oh yeah, we have this plane flying and uh, no one was really keeping an eye on it. No, there were dozens of people in that moment watching that. Yeah, and you know, I know the video for this podcast doesn't go out, Darren, but see whenever you asked what about the flight path, there was a little twitch in your eye and I, and I will interpret that twitch and it was, see if this guy thinks that the flight path was wrong. This guy is I'm done with him. I'm divorcing him. I am never having anything to do with this guy ever again. And I, I felt a bit sort of reassured, kind of post-twitch, being like, yeah, yeah, he's he's in with the flight path. And I, I don't know why it's being debated either, to be honest. I, I, I don't... There's, there's nothing even I can think of to be the devil's advocate. No, and in this case, there are so few things that we have actual evidence for. And yeah. the flight path is one of those things. Hmm. And you've got McCord... And civilian air traffic control, kind of collab, working together, working off the same stuff, and like they're not disputing each other. One hasn't turned on the other. Like McCord didn't say, "Oh, uh, Cliff Ammerman made this mistake," or uh, flight ops 
messed up our flight path or Northwest Orient. Our flight ops didn't say, oh, McCord messed up our flight path. You know, screw those guys. That doesn't happen. I know of. You know, they didn't turn on each other. They're not disagreeing with each other on the flight path either. <laughs> right. and they, they were they were there and they coordinated it to an extent together. And they, 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 they haven't disputed it. Like, there's nobody that's come forward to be like, hey, I was in McCord in 1971 uh, and we were uh, and we messed up our radar or they messed up the radar. Because that's what's pretty common and, and large scale investigations such as this. I mean, blame a portion is a big thing between civilian entities, the army. I mean, with the Northern Ireland Troubles, like my last book, anything that's disputed, you know, you'll have the army pointing the finger at civilians and you'll have civilians pointing their finger at the army uh, and any bone of contention. But that did not occur in this case. What do you think Cooper's drop zone was? I think he dropped near Brush Prairie. I think he dropped a bit further south. I mean, I'm I'm torn between landing in the drink, but I think he may have landed a little bit further south than the original uh, aerial area. I think he landed a little bit further south where there's, there's two outcomes. I mean, there's nothing was left behind. No body, no bomb, no parachute. So let's go to option A. He landed on the drink in a no-pull. The least likely option, right? Least likely. He got that open. That's what they were designed to do. My one is uh, nearly 70 years old. It opens. It's fine. It's to, it's a simple design. That's what it was made to do. I can't see the guy just not opening it. I mean, what I would do is probably just open it on the, on the stair or pop and pop, jump and pull and keep my hand on it, even at exit. Um, so there's the drink and being swept out. Even on a pull, I mean that. I mean it's a twenty-four foot canopy. Parachutes are quite large, so it would have washed up somewhere. But landing on land, you know, inland there, there's a lot more open area for him to land in. Where I thought, oh, he, you know, he landed in like, you know, the way Hollywood and the you know, popular culture media has had it. You know, he jumped in a rainstorm in the middle of the night into a dense forest, where it was. It was an okay night. It was dark, but muzzly. Ten knot winds, which are fine, which are okay, and could have landed in a reasonably open area around there. But I, I do think it was, it was south, a bit further south. I could definitely see that. Not Tina Bar. I don't think he landed in Tina Bar. No, he couldn't have landed in Tina Bar. The wind is going to push him east, and Tina Bar is, you know, depending on where the plane is at in its flight path, ten to fifteen miles west of of that so yeah i don't know let's just go right into that how did the money get to tina bar no idea next <laughs> uh no 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 idea uh i mean i'm hearing things all these diatoms and it washing up and all that i don't think cooper buried it after he landed that night i just i don't think about it because i let's let's pretend we are cooper so we have jumped out of a plane. We've extorted $200,000. We've committed a capital crime. What would soon become the most wanted per individual in the United States, probably. Uh, the most wanted person. Um, I've got this loot that I've risked my life for under this crappy parachute. And I'm a middle-aged man. I have aches and pains. My memory is starting to go. And I have went through this ordeal, this six-hour ordeal. Like, I mean, he got to PDX at, what, 2 o'clock. He didn't leave to, what, quarter past 8 so that's six hours. This is an old man. He needs a nap very soon. 
And he gets to the ground and he unloads three packets of bills and just decides to bury them. I mean, I see on the way down under the canopy, like I have all the hookers and cocaine lined up for that money that I risked my life for and I am going to enjoy it because I'm 50 and I don't have long left. You know, that's that's my, I just, I don't know how the money got there. I don't know. Um, let's throw out some guesses. It washed up there. Uh, it washed up after he landed on the drink and the Fazios rejigged their beach and they were sitting there and then sand was dumped on top of them. Then Brian Ingram found them. That's option A. Uh, option B, uh, somebody found a mangled corpse and thought, oh, here's money. I'm going to keep it until the, and bury it until the money's less hot. And we'll get rid of the body and the parachute too. And we'll just keep the money, uh, which was never spent. Um, uh, I, I think I think I think that's it. I, th- I, I can't think of anything else. I mean, it is an absolute mind bend of a situation how that money got there. I have no idea. It's so insane that you know the one piece of evidence we get after the hijacking. Not only does it not answer any of our questions, but it's just it baffling. Gets more. It's just so puzzling. Well, how did it end up there? Why did it end up there? The geography doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't. Well, obviously, for my book, I had to work that in a creative way, which I I, I don't know. Is this a spo- is there spoilers in this or not? Is there spo- uh, let let's be do the safe option, go for no spoilers. But I had to work that, and even the particles on the tie, as well as a piece of evidence, that stupid little tie. Um, what it will say, probably nothing, because even with the tie, like darn, they passed that thing around like a joint for years with the regular mail. I mean, they're going to get some FBI agents' DNA on it. I would hope and pray that they do get some sort of DNA off it from the hijacker. 52 years, I can't see it either. The problem with, let's say we pull DNA off the tie tomorrow. And it turns out, oh, it's Gary Johnson. Gary Johnson was D.B. Cooper, uh, but he also died in 1993. That, for me, is sort of worse than the case remaining unsolved. Because unless I get to know what was going through his mind, what did he do as soon as his boots hit the ground, how much went according to plan, and how much did you have to improvise, all that kind of stuff is... I just want to know that so bad. But if we get DNA off the tie and it turns out to be someone who died 25, 30 years ago, who, you know, obviously he didn't tell his children the story or write it in a journal so that everyone would know, because I think that would have come up by now. But it hasn't. So imagine they get get DNA off the tie. Walt Rekha was TV Cooper. Walt Rackus DNA found on time. How would you feel about that? We find out who it is, but they're dead and there's no real well, evidence. Well, the point of Cooper, now this is, it kind of ties into, I found Cooper to be a very unremarkable individual. So unremarkable that none of the passengers and crew wrote a book about him or really spoke about him. I think they were maybe frightened of him, but reasonably underwhelmed by him like uh bill mitchell described him as a geeky old man a nerdy old man was what he described him as as a nerdy old man it was just quite underwhelming but see with some of the suspects that were floated as cooper some of them were extraordinary hollywood-esque type characters like even bob rackstraw i mean uh mccoy um 
uh, Sheridan Peterson, really remarkable lives, very, very interesting people. And I had what I wanted to make Cooper for my Cooper, but telling the story was a boring and unremarkable person where a lot of, because whenever the reviews are coming back, I'm asking them, do you remember anything about my Cooper? Do you remember anything specifically about him? And they're like, not really. Why do you say that? And I said, because that's how the guy got away. That's how the guy got away. That's how nobody thought, oh, it's Mr. Mr. Uh, everybody down the street. Or it was uh, somebody's missing. So it's either somebody that nobody missed if he went missing and he no pulled or died or that nobody ever suspected that the guy was just beige wallpaper. He was vanilla ice cream, just unremarkable. And if it's definitely pinpointed, if it's pinpointed that this individual was D.B. Cooper, their life would be very, very, very boring. Uh, liked gardening, went to Tai Chi on Sundays. And, you know, there's no Vietnam exploits. There's no being a drug mule. There's no because the guy just would have been unearthed by now. This was a really bland, beige individual. And that's and it's nearly like I don't want that to be confirmed. There's a bit of me that wants the guy to be the badass, to be the sticking it to the man guy. But the guy probably liked cups of coffee and cleaning his drains. Very boring. I, I can't imagine Cooper being an individual that I would want to sit and have a beer with. I mean, like, you know, like the heaven beers, you know, when you get to heaven, who's the first person you're having a beer with? You know, Elvis, James Dean. Like, I imagine Cooper just being a quiet, blah, boring individual and being really disappointed. I'm thinking, you know, for somebody that committed this, you know, act of terrorism slash sticking it to the man, depending on who you're looking at, I, I could imagine myself thinking you're a bit of a snore fest. But even if he is a bit of a snore fest, he has one great story. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> I don't think he has any more. I mean, that would be his one great story where, I mean, Bob Rackstraw, he had a ton of great stories. Like, oh, yeah. Ton of great wild stories. Life. McCoy, tons of great stories. I mean, really, like, McCoy, not Cooper, by the way, but a real fascinating individual. Somebody really, needs really to make fascinating. that movie, the McCoy story. 100%. Yeah, and... Uh, with McCoy, it's, I mean, a family man, a, a, like a parachutist, uh, you know, and he had this funny Looney Tunes voice uh, and, you know, had, was studying a bit of a law at BYU. Like really fascinating individual. And I, Cooper, I, to me, just wasn't any of those. Like all of the suspects are a lot of them. I think the only one that's maybe a bit blah, a bit boring in my eyes is Vince Peterson. You know, okay. but me. Yeah. But boring, but he, and and that's sort of what makes me think. Ah, I kind of like him because he's boring. Because he's a nothing. He's a like, I mean, not a career criminal, not this expert military guy. I mean, you've got Bordal, who's the the nerdy old man too. I was going to ask you what you thought about Milton Bordal. I think he's great. He's if I were to imagine Cooper, it would be it would be one of those two for me. There's another one that's come out recently, uh, a, a forerunner for the dead camp. Um, it's been in the mystery group, a, a guy called Lee Herbert Sellers, who's been missing. But uh, very, but is he looks a Canadian quite like gentleman? the sketches. Yes. Okay, I know that guy. 
he he is Canadian. I if you were to ask me what what were my top three, they would be my top three. I think the rest of them were overqualified, not boring enough because even like Sheridan Peterson being interviewed, like what a remarkably interesting, fascinating person, which made me think not Cooper. He's too fascinating. Like he strikes me as somebody that whenever Sheridan Peterson went into a room, everyone knew that Sheridan Peterson was there. I That's the impression that I got of him. Even as, and like, do you know the, the documentary? I can't remember which documentary he was in. He was interviewed. And that was him in his, what, his 90s? As a, or his late 80s, at least? Yeah, at his apartment. Yeah, where it's just, you knew he was there. He mm-hmm. did captivate people and very, very memorable. But for Cooper, it's problematic. Because you've got somebody that a couple of years later, the primary witnesses are saying, I don't remember anything about him. Just this boring man. And that's fascinating in and of itself. He's so unfascinating that it fascinates me somewhat. And a lot of me doesn't want to find out that he genuinely was a boring old fart, which is is my take on him. I, I wanted to have the badass just kept coming up with a boring old fart. Why do you think there are so many suspects in this case? Because it's, I mean, when you've got somebody that's Mr. Everybody, I mean, what did he look like? Everybody. What did he sound like? Everybody. You know, 5'10", average height for a U.S. male. What color hair did he have? Black, most common hair color. What color eyes did he have? Possibly brown, most common eye color. Um, I, I mean, what age is he? I don't know, around 50, between 45 and 50. So you've got... Everyone, like if you, if Cooper's description was, you know, dreadlocks, uh, a patch over one eye, a hook for a hand, a peg leg and a parrot sitting on a shoulder, then that would really narrow the suspect pool. And I think the escape via parachute, there were a lot of parachute trained military people and skydiving was taking off as a thing back then. You know, it was starting to take off to the point of even the Elsinore ghost being involved and you know that kind of thing too like there's a i think there's a lot of suspects because his description matches a lot of people like if i mean with me like let's say it's november 24th 1971 and i'm 33 and i'm well i'm over six feet tall you know brown eyes clean shaven face black hair parted on the left somebody probably would have called the cops on me and i wasn't cooper you know, and that's that's probably what happened. Where there's somebody like, oh, you know, this this guy's into skydiving, and he sort of meets the description a bit. And look, he's even wearing a skydive swag, which nobody will see. But um, th- th- that's probably why. There's there are more skydivers and military parachutists out there than people think there are. There's tons of them, and that's why there were so many about over a thousand credible leads, and I mean. As far as the perfect crime, yeah, it's the perfect crime. Did Cooper execute it perfectly? No, uh, far from it. But that that's that's why there's there's so many. Like if he was a little short, stocky, ginger-haired guy, then I think we would have nailed him. There would be a lot fewer just... suspects. <laughs> way fewer, right way that. fewer. Where he's just the average guy being average in an average way, and that's why there's. Well said. All right, here's a tougher one. Why are why have there been so many confessions? Uh cash, quick cash. I mean, confessions are very profitable. I mean, 
uh, for newspapers selling exclusives. I mean, nobody wants to die in a st- into state. Nobody wants to die without a will. I don't know the people uh, that have you know, confessed. Have any of them made money off of it? Well, I mean, whether let's say Dwayne Weber didn't confess to his wife Joe, and so she yeah. made that up and she ran with it. She certainly mm-hmm. didn't make a cent off of that. Or let's even go Kenny Christensen's brother, who seemed like he did have some motive to, hey, I wonder if I can get paid from this. He never made a dime off of that. And then, you know, Rekka, he didn't want his confession to come out till after he died. Yeah. Uh, There's a lot of reasons why people would try and confess the the crimes. I mean... Although, yeah, I mean, Joe, Joe Weber, nobody made, nobody made a dime, but there's no evidence or not. Like, I don't, I, I want to be careful around words, but it's difficult to assess somebody's intent before doing it and then assessing the actual result at the end. So let's say I wanted to confess to being D.B. Cooper and I thought, okay, I'm going to get money for this. I'm going to do this for financial reasons. And then I've confessed to being D.B. Cooper and I got no money for it. I'm like, you know, even though I didn't make a cent, maybe it was my intent to try and make some sense in both sense of the word. That's true. That's true. So there, 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 there could be that. And with, with Dwayne Weber, a little side note in Dwayne, Dwayne Weber, I mean, he was a career criminal and crook, and he was a bad one. Did he spend most of his life in jail? Or he, he had a really hard time staying out of jail. Um, All of all of his life. I just don't think that Cooper was a career criminal. And a lot of the confessors, Barbara, well, had very checkered pasts, you know, whether it was military discipline or law enforcement discipline, had a lot of issues. And I just don't think the guy was a career criminal. And even if he landed safely, well, safe and sound, I think he just kept his mouth shut forever. You know, I'm trying to, in my head, go through all the people who have confessed to see if there's one of them that's a true upstanding individual. And uh, I'm not coming up with anything. No, uh, I mean, you know, Gossett's I mean, own son that, told him, told me what a terrible man his dad was. Yeah, he was a well, he became a Catholic priest, um, you know, for the end of his life. But he did have a lot of, uh, and he had a military rap sheet. I don't know if he had like a police one can't remember but i mean as far as you know these confessors they weren't model citizens were they no and i think with cooper up until november 24th 1971 i think the guy was a model citizen i think he was desperate for money i think he needed something to go and jump and he needed the money quickly he needed it urgently to the point where he would risk his life in this caper to do it and i think with a career criminal career criminals don't often alone as such i mean i actually have a social work background and unfortunately had the displeasure of working with a lot of career criminals and career criminals are very very good at ratting each other out whether it's to the press or whether it's to law enforcement as informants rats there's never been a rat from the mob from the ira from the hell's angels motorcycle club that has said cooper was one of ours that's true i mean i mean that's nobody has claimed cooper and Cooper would be a to claim for recruitment. Like, let's say I was in the mob. Hey, you know, I would be like, can we claim him? You know, oh, the, the bad. I don't know if that's how they do their marketing, right? I, I mean, I don't know if that's what, part of the recruitment strategy. Like, you know, like Uncle Sam needs you or whatever. But no criminal enterprise has claimed Cooper as their own. 
And even for like small cell, small petty crime burglars and robbers, like nobody has said or written a book or said in the media, hey, I used to rob banks with D.B. Cooper. I used to break into garages and steal cars with D.B. Cooper. Nobody's ever said that. You know, as far as confessions are concerned, and then everybody that actually confessed, very checkered pasts, very challenging times in their lives, to the point where they, they would have no credibility in their confession, that had already lied to law enforcement or lied in court or whatever else, which some of these guys did do. And I just don't think anybody that confessed to me was like, nah, not interested. What do you think of the fact that the FBI within a year, year and a half, released two different sketches that look wildly different? Because the guy was so blah. The guy was so bland that it was, I think the, the composite sketch artist, and I, I think it's very easy to stick the boot in the FBI. I think it's, a, were the FBI perfect? No. Were they dealing with a unique crime that had been executed correctly from some perspectives for the first time? Yes. Where the, the initial sketches that came out where the FBI said to all the passengers in the first class lounge, what did he look like? Everybody. Just a normal guy. To the point, you know, did he look like that? Yeah. Did he look like that? Yeah. I mean, as far as attributes for Cooper that are universally agreed upon. Receding but black hair, a narrow face, and olive skin. That is not a good description. Like, if you look at the composites of even Martin McNally's, Martin McNally's sketch, he's quite distinct. He's quite distinguishable. And um, the sketch was pretty good of him that they, that was initially released. And I think the FBI had an impossible task of trying to put a, a a sketch out of him and and i i know the second sketch i suppose where they effed up with the first one was that his complexion was slightly darker and i think for the sketch to reflect that on the color one in the 1972 one i think it was the right thing to do to bring out a color sketch of some description and to show his age a little bit more because with a bang sketch the guy could be 25 he could be 55 whereas the second sketch is definitely a man in and around the age of 50. What do you think of the, his age? Because if I told you that say, somebody hijacked this airplane and jumped out of it, guess how old they were? You would be like, I don't know, 25? Because that definitely seems like a young man's crime. What do you think of the it fact that he is 50 years old? Or 40 to 50 years old? To me, it makes perfect sense. I think it makes perfect sense to keep calm. Like, if you look at the younger hijackers, if you look at McCoy, if you look at even McNally, Martin, gentleman, by the way, who've had the pleasure of, of, of speaking with, um, they did the whole, I kill all you motherfuckers thing. You know, they did all that. They threatened people. They frightened people. And this was somebody that didn't, Cooper was somebody that didn't do any of that, where I, what I wanted to do was to get everything that he said, as, keeping it as accurate as, as possible. And whenever you look through it all, it's a man who conducted himself from a bygone era where, you, I mean, let's say he was born 1921. You know, communication and communications and ed social etiquette was very, very different in pre-war United States and Europe 
than it was afterward. Where him being older, it, it shines through in everything. You know, even not swearing, not no blasphemy, no swearing, no shouting. And that was the hallmark of a mature man with life experience who was able to handle a very stressful situation, despite him inflicting it. That he, the other copycats, and a lot, especially the younger ones, they did collapse and become angry and threatening. And he didn't. And I, I think for him being older, it, it makes perfect sense. I find in any suspect talk, any suspect under 45 is challenging. It is challenging. Where some of them even go down younger, like even the unit bomber, you know, that that were in their late 20s or even their early 30s. And even as far as social etiquette and social norms uh, at that time, even say 33 and 50, 17 years, that's a long time because during the war, the churches, especially the Catholic Church, lost a hell of a lot of influence on people. And that's only continued to decline over the subsequent decades. Like, I mean, I, I love in Catholic Ireland, and I think it's if I were to go, go to Mass on Sunday, I would probably burst into flames. And people would laugh and be like, hey, what are you doing here? You know, uh, but I think with, with, with Cooper, that kind of maybe religious kind of connotation is there. I thought that, that I just couldn't get away from that. He he's not a young trendy dude, is he? But why at that age? I mean, if you if you look at who commits crazy violent crimes, it's dudes between let's say sixteen and thirty. Mm. But usually by then, you know, you're sort of established in life. You've calmed down a little bit as you've got older. All of a sudden, now I have things to lose. Men, fifty year old men, don't generally commit crazy crimes they, they don't and that's what made even this breaking bad what made walter white such a fascinating and enduring character is because he reached 50 years old and there is a, a couple i believe of db cooper references within breaking bad if you watch them uh there are, there are a couple of references and i think vince gilligan the creator of breaking bad had cited cooper as an influence as a middle-aged aging criminal that you know, this really daring act, whether it was for retirement. I mean, the way I've written it is a really extenuating family circumstances. There's difficult things like insurance, health bills, uh, various other things. I, I didn't want to go down the criminal, like gambling debts and any of that kind of thing. But sometimes in life, some people need a big chunk of cash for their family or for their personal interests, and they need it pretty quickly. And desperate people will do desperate things and desperate means and desperate circumstances if the situation warrants it. And uh, with Cooper, that's what I really think. That, that That's what happened. I think this was a guy that was desperate. Where an interesting detail as well, that the ticket agent had said whenever he sold the ticket, even the, the, the selling of the ticket, you know, and given his name, you know, Cooper, Cooper, you know, shady McFake name, uh, like Bond, James Bond, you know, like the weathered hands, the calloused hands or the, you know, the rough, and, you know, this could have been a laborer that was 50 and wasn't going to get hired anywhere, you know, because he was 50 and maybe had white hair and had no pension, no prospects and could have ended up on the street. Who knows? I think that's why maybe someone of Cooper's age would come out of crime like that. Why do you think he chose the name Dan Cooper? 
I think it was just a random stab in the dark because the other copycats were asked, why did you pick that name? Like with McNally, he picked Robert Wilson. And with McCoy, he picked, was it E. Johnson? And they were asked, you know, why why did you pick that name? Is there some sort of significance? And they said, no. Uh, so I think with Cooper, I, I am sure it would be amazing for your listeners and for everybody else to hear this wonderfully, beautifully crafted theory uh, of how he picked Cooper, Dan Cooper from the Canadian comics and everything else. Of course, that's the re- the reason I picked. But in real life, he may have sat in the cab or sat outside smoking a cigarette, wondering what name will I give? Uh, okay, Dan Cooper, and just came up with it, stubbed out a cigarette and bought the ticket. Uh, I don't think there's uh, a significance because don't forget, this is a guy about to commit a capital freaking crime for a f- four parachutes and a big bag of money. Are you going to give a name that could somehow, somewhere be linked back to you? I think it was random. I'd oh, love no. to say something different. If the name could be linked back to him, if I, you know, robbed a, a bank that's on like the fifth floor of some building and then I rappelled down like Spider-Man and my fake name was Peter Parker... I don't know that that's a lead they could use. At least they would know, oh, yeah, he gave his name as Peter Parker, obviously, as an homage to the way he's about to escape. Mm. Or, you know, if I I escaped the train on, you know, that's the example I used before. It's like if I robbed a train and escaped on a skateboard and my ticket was under Tony Hawk, is that a coincidence or an homage? But what I would say then is if I was watching the news, and I'd heard about this fifth floor robbery. And the guy descended in his escape like Spider-Man and had given the alias Peter Parker. I'd be sitting there wondering, gosh, I have a friend called Baron Schaefer and he collects Spider-Man memorabilia and he loves Spider-Man comics and he's wearing a Spider-Man t-shirt right now. I'm going to call the FBI and see if they'll look under this guy. <laughs> you know, or even with Tony Hawk. Oh, he escaped via skateboard? Now, for to escape via skateboard, there must be some vested interest or involvement in skateboards to warrant an escape using one. Now, a skateboard's obviously a little less complicated than a parachute, but I have a friend called Darren that is really into skateboards. Sort of looks like the description that they've just put up on the screen in front of me. I'm going to call the FBI. I think it's too risky. Uh, that's true. That's true. It does add a, another element of risk, especially if you are like a huge fan of something. This was a guy, look, he messed up with the tie. You know, he messed up with the tie, but this was somebody that was very, very eager to get the matches back, or the matchbooks back, the notes back, telling Tina to go away. You know, this is somebody that was very eager to get evidence back, and I think even in PDX, there's nothing of him. He became the wallpaper in PDX. There's nobody that's like, he was doing this in PDX, and he had to interact with a ticket agent. Of course, if you're planning this, it's going to be, who are they going to talk to? They're going to talk to the ticket agent. And what name did he give? Dan Cooper. And these details were all released to the media, where if it's like, oh, escape by parachute, or, oh, I know a guy that matches that description, and his mother's maiden name is Cooper, or this guy loves these Dan Cooper comics, I'm going to call the FBI. I just, as a, a planner, and an evidence gatherer other than the tie, I think to give a false name 
that could in any way be traced back to him would have been incredibly foolish. Now, I think in a lot of ways, Cooper did. I think there were some things that he sucked with. I don't think he sucked the fake name. I think it was just a random name that he extracted from somewhere and just put it down with no significance whatsoever. I think that's certainly possible. I think it would be hilarious, though. He does do it as an homage to the comic book. And then what does he read in the paper two days later? D.B. Cooper. Who the hell is D.B. Cooper? I said it was Dan Cooper. <laughs> yeah, the, I, the, I, the, I kind of did allude to that in, in writing as well, because that, that's a big error. That's a, that is a big error to have, because he gave the name as Dan Cooper. And I've, I've called my book Dan Cooper, because that's what he called himself. That's what he, that is what he was called. And I think that could have potentially, I don't think, if, like, let's say we could turn the clock back and change something about the investigation of the case. Um, I certainly would have, I don't think outlawing D.B. Cooper would have led to his capture anyway. I think it's an inconsequential detail, but who knows, maybe somewhere, I don't know if it would bring anybody up out of the ether or anything, but uh, it would be cool if it was the, the, the Dan Cooper comic homage. It seems to, it's a, it's a, it's a remarkable coincidence. It certainly is. Do you think that this case can be solved? Do you think no. we'll ever know who it was? No. Uh, I would love to. I personally, I, I don't know. I'm conflicted now. This is the vortex effect where I answered the, a similar question earlier and said, I don't want to know who he is, but now I'm like, yeah, I want to know. Um, and I suppose that's what a vortex is, isn't it? It's a, it's a downward, dangerous, perilous spiral. And you can come to different points and you, while you're tumbling through it. I don't think it'll ever be solved. I, I think the tie was passed around so frequently that the day it's been so contaminated and even in reno like i just have this vision of these police dogs and these fbi guys you know walking around you know with their trench coats and their cigars dropping cigar ash everywhere spitting everywhere you know uh, there was no forensics care wasn't taken on the crime scenes and that's not because they were careless it's because they didn't know what dna was and weren't able to extract anything the cigarette butts were thrown away the hair slides have been lost I just can't imagine a scenario where it'll be conclusive. I think there, with Cooper, there might be an element of Cooper will have a Kosminski. Like Aaron Kosminski is largely accepted of having been Jack the Ripper, where it seems to fit. There was some partial DNA extraction from the shawl of one of the Ripper's victims, Catherine Eddowes. And I think this is. You know, I mean, with the pride, the tie that you know that Eric's champion, championing, uh, this is kind of the Cooper equivalent to the the Edo Shaw, and I just don't know if there will be a good enough profile where that'll be able to be conclusively matched with someone with a hundred percent pinpoint accuracy to the point where it could be prosecuted, even if the guy was alive, which he wasn't. He was a chain smoker, um, and a fifty-year-old one in nineteen seventy-one. So. I don't think it'll ever be solved conclusively. And I think with Cooperism, Cooperology on the Vortex, I think there's some shift going on where it's going from trying to solve the case to preserving the story. I think that's where we're at. And that's, I suppose, whenever I was writing my book, that 
it's about preserving the story as in a way uh, rather than actually trying to solve it like i will never i believe in a million years somebody like oh i read jude morrow's not historical fiction take of uh db cooper and it led to somebody being identified as cooper it's about preserving the story and remembering it for what it was rather than actually actively solving it i just don't think the dna that could be extracted from the tie will be able to be conclusively matched to somebody i i can't see it it would be nice but i can't see it and if it is you know we go back to uh i think i used gary johnson as my cooper but if we find out that's who it was and he didn't run his mouth or write it in the journal then the vortex just shifts to now we have to investigate this guy's life and make new theories up and but are we going to get that it just seems like we're not at this point going to get that first-hand account of this is why i did it this is how i planned it this is what went right this is what went wrong this is what i did when my boots hit the ground so i suppose that's i don't think that's ever going to come if it's unearthed you know, and the, and it's almost akin to the Titanic wreck being found where there's a mysterious diary found in a loft. But then let's say, for example, <laughs> Walt Racka's diaries found or McCoy's diaries found and whatever, and somebody has written an account of having carried out this crime. There will still be the vortexy pull of people saying, oh, it's a fake, or oh, it was planted by aliens, or it was it's a conspiracy and people won't believe it. Um, I, I think it'll continue in that way, but I suppose with a lack of a sort of a, a life story and diary of why Cooper did this, how he did it, and where he went afterward, I suppose that was a bit of a, you know, if nobody else is going to try and even make one up, then I'm going to make one up. And, and, th- and that's what it did, did and try and make it as plausible uh, as it possibly could you know without kind of factoring in any stuff that was way too crazy in fact it was more of a challenge making the guy ah and boring and forgettable so i i i, I, I that I, I think that's the phase that we're going on to because you know 52 years it's a long time it's a hell of a long time ago now and i just don't see it happening and i think there's going to be like a collective shift in attitude toward the case where i mean there will be still people arguing if the bomb is real or not in 40 years time i think those little debates will keep going this way, there's still some jack the ripper debates you know the double certainly stuff like that those those things will be discussed and i mean jack the ripper what was 1888 so that's 125 years ago and people are still discussing it I don't think anybody's really solving it. But then again, the shawl was 110 years later. So who knows? There might be that maybe time travel will be invented in 10 years time. Or I, I don't know, a wormhole. Somebody will find a tear in the fabric of space and time and actually go back and sit beside the guy. Because an interesting thought that I've had, I wonder, was Flight 305 Dan Cooper's first attempt? Let's say a week before or in the weeks leading up, he got on the plane with his shifty ass fake name and his briefcase and somebody sat beside him and he went and just landed on the other side and walked away. Like, was that his first go at it? Did it or did he have a couple of flights? Because that crime was entirely dependent on nobody sitting beside him. 
because it's like imagine giving the note you know saying to the person beside him don't move the stewardess needs to sit there flight crew somebody needs to sit there where was flight 305 his first attempt who knows it's, it's probably just a detailed conjecture point that nobody will ever get to the bottom of oh yeah i've thought about that a lot too like there weren't very many people on that plane and no. i've flown quite a few times and the number of times where i have like all the seats in my row just the, the, no one sitting to my left or to my right the number of times that's happened to me i can count on one hand i tried to count that i can't i couldn't think of anything and i mean like I mean, as far as like writing and DB Cooper stuff, like I, I travel a lot, like with my like businesses and like the speaking circuit and stuff like that. Like I do like autism and neurodiversity conferences and stuff all over the world. And I try to think, have I ever been in a situation where I've had a clean row of seats? And I thought of it once, what one time, and it was actually recently on a flight to new york and the, and the reason why that was is because it was covid and everybody was basically still hiding under their bed with masks on and hazmat suits in their own house on their own and there weren't many people flying and that was the only time i could think so who knows maybe cooper had boarded a couple of other flights and had boarded the plan you touched on it a little bit like what would it take to solve this case to a satisfactory level for everyone because we've already had confessions. We've had, you know, secondhand confessions. It was my dad. It was my uncle. What do you need to see to be convinced? I think the answer to the question comes in two parts. What does it need to be satisfactorily solved? The money to turn up, the parachute to turn up, an unearthed photograph of the guy sitting in PDX that can be completely identified, placing him at the crime without the sunglasses on. Uh, I don't think it's going to be particles on tie i hope it's particles on tie but you know i suppose i'm trying to hedge my disappointment bets that's what it's going to take to solve it is that you need to place the individual at the scene of the crime so let's say there's uh there's particles found on the tie and the particles are linked to me right they're linked to jude morrow who lives in ariel washington in 1971 and my descendants are chased up oh your dad or your grandfather was D.B. Cooper. And what if they retort by saying, oh, I remember one time uh, he donated a lot of clothes to charity in the mid-60s, including this black clip-on tie. Where, where do you go from there? What, what happens after that? Where, for Let's say it's pinned on an individual and some of the individual's descendants deny it and say, oh, I remember he gave that tie away. Or no, that wasn't his tie. I've never seen that tie before. Or... Uh, he looked at it, he touched it once, or he took it to work one day, or, you know, and it wasn't his. You know, where where do you go from there? Um, I'd love the money to have an answer, but I don't think it does. The money is the bigger mystery here than Cooper. I mean, Cooper's boring, the money's not boring. I, I mean, like, how the hell did the money get there? Um, but I don't know what could be extracted from the cash would be able to pin it on an individual it's gonna need something that doesn't exist which is a 100 i was gonna say bomb proof excuse the pun uh picture of the guy in the airport with smock raincoat briefcase and sitting there and for somebody to say that's this person and i that's just not really there because even the dna evidence being pinned to an individual like the even with the money, there was a nine-year chain of custody after 1971 between 1980. Maybe other people touched the money. Who knows? 
we don't know. We'll never know. And I know DNA evidence and forensic evidence is the gold standard of investigative journalism and policing and prosecution. I just don't think that even if an individual's DNA is extracted from a tie, that it could be defended in court as conclusively there. So the FBI destroyed evidence. They threw the cigarettes away. Or they disposed of them somehow. Where uh, uh, Ryan Burns again. Hi Ryan. Fanboy here. Uh, was on a podcast lately. And if Cooper was brought to court today. The case could be thrown out. Because the FBI destroyed evidence. Which is a must trial right away. So I I would love. I, I, I want to have a way to say this is how it's going to be solved. I can't think of anything. And I'm a reasonably creative-ish guy, I think, in places. Do you think there could be a confession that's convincing enough at this point? No. Uh, I, it doesn't make it doesn't match the profile of Cooper, the man that was seen and interacted with. This wasn't a mouthy, showy guy. I think anybody that confessed it was just an immediate no. I mean, confessors for any crime or anybody seeking publicity in any way, like, I'm thinking of it from my point of view. I love the centre of attention. The limelight's my favourite thing in the world. There's no light bright enough, bright enough to burn my retinas. I will stand under any light and pontificate and talk to anybody. And there's some people that just aren't like that. And as far as colourful characters go, Cooper didn't behave like one. And there's no reason to think that after a an event like that he would somehow become a colorful character and confess to it uh i just would I, I would be intrigued for maybe 15 minutes and then decide nah he's too colorful to be cooper I'd, the personality portrait of db cooper isn't really in line with the confessor at, at least at least i don't think but what would be on the confession to make it convincing like let's say a 105 year old man confessed to the crime today still living where there's a lot of public information out there where someone could craft a really convincing confession with all of the information that's out there publicly like someone could do what i did all the way through my writing journey and listen to this podcast could listen to all the episodes and could craft a confession and w would it be believable yeah it could be believable but is it true probably not what do you think of the fact that this story is true crime, but it seems like the only attention it gets for men, whereas the rest of true crime, the audience is primarily female? Why does this story seem to primarily appeal to men? That's a really good question. It's something that I, I hadn't considered. And well, one thing that I, I've picked up you know, lately, you know, because a lot of the D.B. Cooper mystery group, a lot, a lot of them are women. A lot of them are women, and it's encouraging to see a lot of them have read the book already, and you know, shout out and thanks to all of them. But uh, that, that, that's really quite intriguing, because I, I know with true crime, uh, often yeah, the audience does tend to be uh, women, because my last book technically is women's fiction, as the, as the last one, and, and the audience and the readership for it was primarily female, and it, it was true crime, like it covered like, the Bloody Sunday and you know stuff like that and riots and everything and from a historical fiction take and yeah the audience was prim primarily women but it's uh i suppose it's a bit of a 
an outlier, but I mean, with the Zodiac Killer, uh, that community, which uh, I, I know that Tom Colbert and his team are trying to solve now, or have solved, or whatever, probably haven't solved. But I think that audience is mostly male as well, is it? Uh, I would presume. I don't know the answer on the Zodiac. It's, I wonder about it because I have, you know, friends that are podcasters doing true crime and talking to them. They're like, oh, yeah, my audience is over 75 percent female. And I'm looking at my audience. I'm like, my audience is 95 percent dudes, like yeah. very, very small female audience. We're just all boring old, old, old men, maybe. Maybe we're just all <laughs> lonely, boring old men. Maybe because Cooper was a boring, lonely old man that maybe we relate to him subconsciously. Where I maybe we're just boring old farts. And you know, like the whole trendy thing now, you know, finding your tribe. You know, maybe Cooper is our tribe. Where I think you need to have a certain sense of dull about you to really love Cooper. And I'm I'm dull. I'm incredibly dull. Um, like, and I maybe that's why there's a bit of me that sort of, yeah, you're dull too, you know. And 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 yeah, we're all dull. Maybe maybe that's it. Maybe we subconsciously are connected by a soul bond to this boring old fart. Maybe that's it. But now that you you say that actually, because now I'm kind of coming up to the promo trail to release on the thirtieth of October. I was, th- I was speaking to another, you know, like with some podcasts, but I know you don't do them for this. I sometimes I do them for my own podcast, you know, like pre podcast interviews, just to make sure that the guest isn't a complete and utter, like that nobody will be in the grocery store or will be in their car or will be in a crappy phone or microphone. And somebody, now that you say that, uh, one of the podcasts that I'm going on, I think next week, had said that their audience was female for true crime. Come to say that, that that's, that's actually interesting. Uh, but maybe it warrants further investigation and, and discussion you know we're just a bunch of dull dudes uh, gravitating toward this dull dude who did one non-dull act in his life and that's probably why he escaped but why we gravitate to this i don't think i definitely don't think it's because we're dull i think you said it earlier in this interview it's that you know you we know part of the story but we don't know the end and with cooper we don't yeah. actually know the beginning or the end we only know no. this one chapter, and this chapter is a banger. It is awesome. So now I'm like, I have to know the rest of the story. And with me, it's like, for someone to tell me, we don't know. That's annoying. I seem like it's unacceptable. I had a friend yeah. tell me uh, months ago, he was like, you know, nobody knows how eels reproduce. And I was like, that's not true. And he's like, yes, it is true. And then I went down this rabbit hole about how nobody knows how eels produce, eels reproduce. And it was like, it. I think about it all the time now. It drives me crazy. How do we not have the answer to that? And Cooper is, is the same thing. Yeah, it is. I, uh, no, I obviously, you know, the first thing I'm going to do whenever this interview finishes, you know what I'm going to be Googling, how, how eels reproduce. <laughs> but um, it's the same as because I've I've always been drawn to to Mastray and here's another rabbit hole for you. You've given me the eels reproducing rabbit hole, so I want to give you one in return, which is the disappearance of the country singer Jim Sullivan, who uh, at the age of thirty five he has disappeared. He parked his car with boxes of unsold records in the back seat and was never seen or ever heard from ever again. He's never turned up, and his music is great. 
and this he disappeared in 1975 i believe and i've been down a little bit of a rabbit hole with that one whilst enjoying his music as well so i does he look like the sketch of db cooper (laughs) <laughs> he actually does a bit but <laughs> he he was around in 1975 he actually released an album uh, in 1972 uh, he looks a bit like the sketch but he's a little smaller and a little stockier and a little younger but uh, I mean yeah maybe I mean he might be more plausible than some people that are being flouted as Cooper I mean it could be Wiley Coyote I mean, the guy had dynamite money bags, surviving from great heights, parachute experience, had a brown suit. I found a photograph of Wiley Coyote in a brown suit. So a reddish brown suit. Uh, so it could be anybody. But uh, I, I know, well, maybe this will happen where you'll be like, in week's time, you know, or, or whenever this comes out, there'll be an email being like, thanks for introducing me to the Jim Sullivan rabbit hole. Jerk. I'm stuck. <laughs> I've tumbled down this uh, rabbit hole because it's a fascinating story as well, where it's like, this was a popular figure. Like, this wasn't Cooper. This wasn't a beige wallpaper guy. This was a guy that sang in bars and had concerts and had albums out and was recognisable. And just gone forever. Into the ether. All right. One last question for you here. Do you think that I am doing damage to the case by promoting fringe theories? No. I mean, you can't damage the case. Like, you're not damaging the freaking case. The case won't be solved. If you're listening to this and think this case will be solved conclusively, you won't be. What you're doing is contributing to the discussion and keeping it alive. I mean, fringe theories, uh, there's no such thing as a fringe theory. Everybody's guess is as good as everybody else's. If your guess is that Cooper was the Unabomber, it's a guess. Is Cooper the Zodiac Killer? It's a guess. Was Cooper Ted Braden? It's a guess. Was Cooper a French-Canadian uh, Mountie? Maybe. It's a good guess. And I mean, things need to be put out there. Even aliens. It's keeping the name D.B. Cooper in the public domain. It's keeping the story alive. And how the hell can you damage this case? Like, it's 52 years old. It had lots of resources and manpower and people power and radar power and everything attached to it and one of two things happened this guy had astronomical rub of the green and just got away to the point where all you can say is bravo sir you won or he got swept out to sea you you know like even to flip the question on its head like, is there something that somebody could do that could irreparably damage the case that hasn't already happened? The cigarette butts were thrown away. That's gone. The tie was passed around like a joint. That's gone. The front parachute that was cannibalized to make three lines to tie what I believe the money and the bomb in another container bag to himself with more money in it uh, was already passed around and contaminated. All the physical evidence in the case has been completely contaminated to the point where you can't conclusively ever point the finger at one individual, at least with current technology. I may be wrong. So the idea of damaging the case, uh, no. It's it's pretty, pretty solid. Like it's, it won't happen, but I think all discussion for everything to do with Cooper is... Yeah, it's a good thing. Maybe not everybody will agree. Some people are more passionate about their guesswork than others, and some people take their guesswork more seriously uh, than others, but it's a story that's a fascinating one, 
that needs to be kept alive. And I suppose I wanted to try it and do my part in doing it without getting too many tomatoes thrown in my direction. Speaking of a fascinating story, your book comes out uh, right around Halloween? It does. 30th of October, Dan Cooper on all major online book retailers. Amazon will be first on the 30th of October on ebook and uh, paperback. Uh, I will be at CooperCon as well. So if anybody is at CooperCon and listens to this, if it's out before CooperCon, uh, say hello. Um, I mean, I'll not be having books or anything for sale there because... I don't want to be responsible for hauling them on a flight. But if you bring them with you, I will sign them. I will say hello. And it's been really positively reviewed so far from... I should go to CooperCon. Go to CooperCon. I should go. Go to CooperCon. Listen to my my persuasive Irish accent. Please go to CooperCon. And we can have a beer. And we can can compare guesses. We can compare guesses. And I think it'll be fun. I think you should go. And from what I saw of you hosting it on the Netflix series, you did a great job. I think you would be... I, I, I think you should go. I'd love to meet you in real life. Uh, because this has been... This podcast in general has been probably the best resource that there will be on, on Cooper. Uh, this is the kind of the main channel of pumping out content and discussion about Cooper, which needs to continue. So I hope there are more episodes and more people come forward that will actually come on the show, honor being on the show and and keep the discussion going. You're not going to damage the freaking case. The case was gone on November 26, 1971. Well, I like asking that question. When I asked Marty that question, hilariously, he's like, well, yes, I think you are doing damage to the case. Really? Yeah, but it's more in just that, you know, like there are certain details about this that I don't like to talk about publicly because I'm worried I'll say the wrong thing because I've read so many different accounts that, you know, in one book, they might change the parachute details to fit the story a little bit better. So they were a little loosey goosey with the truth on that. So the the parachutes is, is one of them. Um, you know, specifically things Cooper said, if you're going to start quoting him, um, yeah. that gets real loose too. So am I perpetuating that? But my, is this show clouding, <laughs> clouding the airspace? Absolutely not. In my view, no. I mean, people can talk about it and express their views. And I mean, this is a case that's administratively closed and when did this podcast start? 2018? Yeah. So it was already administratively closed two years before that. Yes. So so no, I'm 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 not I'm not I'm not buying fringe damage to the case because the FBI stopped giving a flying turd about it two years before you first went on the air. So that I think that is that a is that a mic drop? I think it would be. <laughs> but, I mean the FBI the FBI stopped it. So Keep yeah, going. that's true. 52 years has gone by. So, But if it's people uh, want to get your book, you said Amazon. If people want to find more of your work, is there somewhere they can go to follow you? Oh, to, uh, absolutely. Uh, I am Jude Morrow on Facebook, on Instagram. I uh, love talking to people, love engaging with people. Uh, ask your questions. I love the Cooper chat. And uh, we'll be at CooperCon. Uh, my site is judemorrow.com or neurodiversity training. Uh, dot com. I have pretty decent SEO that I have pumped a lot into over the last few years. I'm easy to find and 
hopefully easy to talk and converse with. I love uh, hearing people's thoughts and guesses and theories and everything else. Uh, come at me. Uh, I am always delighted to chat. And Darren, thank you so much for having me on here. This is a real, real pleasure because I thought even through the writing of it, I was like, uh, I'd, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd love to be on there someday and I'd, I'd love to talk about it and but this this is just this has just been an absolute joy like I'm 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 so pleased I hope you can tell it by my big happy face which won't even be broadcast because it's audio only but I'm genuinely happy and thankful to you not just for this interview but for the whole podcast and everything you've done to contribute to the discussion so thank you oh it's my pleasure I appreciate having you on you thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you you can find Jude on all your social media apps, but if you want to discuss D.B. Cooper with him, I'd recommend you hit him up on the D.B. Cooper Mystery Group on Facebook. Be sure to get a copy of his new book, Dan Cooper, and check out his website to see all his work at judemorrow.com. As always, we've got links for it all in the show notes. Do you know who D.B. Cooper was? Is there an aspect of this case we're all getting wrong? Can you prove a suspect was innocent? Hit us up. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or email us, dbcooperpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you to Jude Morrow for keeping the story alive. Thank you to Russell Colbert for keeping me alive during that incident in Tampa. Thank you to Darian Osadich for letting us play his tune. I'm Darren Schaefer, and thank you for listening to the Cooper Vortex. Hijacked a plane, so we were told Then he jumped into the cold Rats of bourbon and a cigarette In the air, the stage is set Polite and kind, the people say It's time to make his getaway This is how the story goes About the money and the man they call me now Catch me if you can Roll up in his cold-built tight He's got enough to change his life Where he landed no one knows But from his tale a legend grows Was a cold, dark, rainy night As he walked he saw light Held his cash close to his side Just needs to catch a ride This is how the story goes About the money and the man D.B. Cooper, they call me now Catch me if you can
the bone Look for a place to use the phone Little cafe outside of town He walked in, he just sat down Met a man with a cowboy hat He told a friend right where he's at Into the night he disappeared And from that night a legend reared This is how the story goes About the money and the man TV Cooper, they call me now Catch me if you can Forty years the secret's out The story has been told E.B. Cooper's done running now He was 80 years old 